all those kind of negative biases that we hold in our own minds can actually become threatening for us and preoccupying for us as we try to maneuver in the world. And the thing that we learned is that in the same way actual physical threat can take away our attentional resources, because it basically means a part of our mind is just dealing with the fact that we are under threat. Well, that happens when our own mind creates the threat as well. Come on this journey with me. Each week when you join me, we are going to chase down our goals, overcome adversity, and set you up for a better tomorrow. I'm ready for my close-up. Hi, and welcome back. I'm so excited for you to meet Dr. Amishi Jha, professor of psychology at the University of Miami here in the 305. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, holy cow, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and post doctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Dr. Jaw's work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. She has received coverage in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and more. And today, we are so lucky to have you here with us, Dr. Jaws. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. And please, Heather, call me Amishi. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. You're so normal, it's crazy. And I just have to put that out there for everyone listening who might not know someone with as much education as you have and living in this neuroscience world. How do you stay so regular? (laughs) Having uh, two teenagers helps. (laughs) That is an excellent point. You you are not fooling around there. I've got a 14-year-old and totally feel that one. Okay, so first of all, I have a personal question to ask you. Sure. Were you scared to death when you gave your TED Talk? You know, it's so funny that you asked me that. I gave my TED Talk at Ransom Everglades, which is a school really close to us. Yes. And when when I gave it, it was the third year they had asked me. So I was like, yeah, I definitely want to do it. Just couldn't get the scheduling done. And finally I agreed to do it. That day I actually had to go to LA to give a talk. And I found out as I was like on my way, you know, getting ready to go to the TED talk that that talk in LA, which I had not prepared for at all, was going to have 700 people at it. So it was sort of like, okay, I was more like, okay, I really want to do a good job with this, but then I got to get to the airport and go across the country. So my mind was so much in the fully being present for what is and then moving on that I wasn't really thinking about being nervous all that much. And then I had no idea that it would go from being a TEDx talk to being picked up by TED. And then it, of course, got a lot more interest. Okay. Well, people don't know that. So I do want to share that your TED talk has over 5 million views. Yeah. Did that blow you away a little bit, especially because the way that you're describing it, you weren't putting that much thought into it. Oh, no, I put a lot of thought into it. I put a lot of thought and effort into it. I just wasn't really preoccupied about it. Like, oh, my God, it's going to go well, which I actually found out. And and I do talk about that in the book. Probably is the reason it went well is because I wasn't so overly uh, preoccupied with the success. I just wanted to make sure in every moment I was I was doing what was supposed to happen. It was a really cool opportunity to see how these topics get traction. I think the reason that it has had so many views is because it really speaks to sort of a, a pain point that I think a lot of us are experiencing right now, this feeling of a crisis of our attention. Well, your book couldn't be coming out at a better time, you know, based off of the isolation that so many of us have been living with, the high level of stress that everyone has been living under, the news, just there's so much chatter and negativity, social media out there that, you know, diving into your book and 
being reminded about a number of things that I knew to do that I'm not doing, but enlightening into some of the things that I thought were working for me that are actually proven not to work in your book. I mean, I was just blown away. So number one, thank you for writing this amazing book and literally laying out a very basic plan that anyone can follow in a short window of time and realize change. And thank you for sharing your personal story. I love the story that is wrapped through your book around your teeth and your challenges and the struggle that you had and that you didn't make mindfulness and awareness this simple thing. I thought that was so relatable. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. And yeah, it was different as a scientist to describe my own journey. But I figured, you know, what got me to wanting to study this topic, it started from my own crisis. And thankfully, I found a solution that I not only felt worked, but I could put it to the test in the lab and found that it may be a tool useful for a lot of other people who experience a lot of challenge and a lot of stress and still have to perform. And I had no idea at that time, this was back in the early 2000s, that we'd be where we are today, you know, where the whole world is a high stress, high demand place with lots of uncertainty, especially over these last 18, 19 months. Can you share a little bit about that personal story and struggle that you had? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always thought of myself as this, oh, I wouldn't, I mean, I would say, yeah, like a go-getter, you know, wanting to get everything done. I felt like I was on the right path, grad school, postdoc. My very first faculty position was at the University of Pennsylvania. So I had landed at really my dream job. And at that point, my husband quit his job, actually, to move with me to Philadelphia. And we bought a 100-year-old fixer-upper. I was pregnant, so I'd started my job like in like literally every possible demand that you can have. And then and then, you know, everything went fine. We we're just growing the lab and, and he's fixing up the house and my son was born. And when my son was about two or so, a little bit older than two, it was like I had this very pivotal moment. I mean, it really, at that point, I mean, I can talk about the, the teeth grinding episode, which I'm not alone. I mean, a lot of people have problems grinding their teeth. But what happened to me that really was my wake up call was evening bedtime book reading with my precious toddler. And I look forward to this all day. It's like the thing I was like connecting with him. You know, I didn't have a lot of time with him because I was very, very busy. And he got a lot more time with my husband actually than me. But this was something we always did. And he's in my lap, snuggled up. We're reading a book we've read, gosh, hundreds of times. And in the middle of like turning the pages, he kind of puts his little hand on my, on the book, like to stop me. And then he looks up me, at me and he says, what's a wump? And it was this Dr. Seuss book, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, literally read it, like I said, a gajillion times. I had no idea what he was talking about. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then I kind of like sneaked at the page and I was like, oh my gosh, he's talking about what's on this page right now, which was an entire passage about wumps. And that was this like moment of like, oh my gosh, I am not here. I am here physically, but I am not here mentally. Here he is. All he wants is me. He All he wants is my attention and time. And I'm. it's looking like I'm doing that, but my mind is a thousand other places. And if this is what's happening to me now when he's this small and, and things are relatively, you know, challenges are relatively manageable, how am I going to show up in the moments where he might need me? And the challenges are a lot bigger than that. So that was my personal like wake up call. And and then, yeah, and then like around that time, I had lost feeling in my front teeth from grinding. And I'm like, okay, the body is giving a lot of signals that there's a lot of stress happening and overwhelm. And then I was on a mission. I'm like, this is not right. I got to get my attention back. And then I thought, you know, my entire professional career I've spent studying this brain system. Literally, I'm an attention researcher. If there's a call for uh, somebody in the media that wants to learn about attention, they call me. 
And then I just could not find anything that was helping. So that was the, the, the actual kind of low point of the journey was feeling completely lost and nowhere to look that could give me answers. And I feel like everyone can relate to that, right? Whether it be reading to your, your child and just trying to fast forward through it to get them to fall asleep and relax or, you know, whatever that situation may be, or even being in a conversation with people and losing your moment in time and saying, oh my gosh, what am I thinking about? How did I get so distracted? So, you know, we all have these struggles. We all understand them. But like you said, figuring out what are the things that we can do that actually work. And I know that a lot of your work in in your lab has been with people in really tense, stressful situations. Can you share a little bit about your work that you've done with people in the military? Yeah, yeah. So that's what got me interested. I mean, initially, I was what we'd call basic scientist. So I was interested in how the brain systems of attention work, bringing undergrads in, putting them in a brain scanner, or doing brainwave recording, and understanding the specific sort of, uh, you know, neural pathways and functional pathways. That was all great. I was excited to learn about that. But after this whole, my own crisis of attention and figuring out, understanding sort of that there's more to this than, than the basic brain science, I got really interested in working with groups who basically suffer from the, what we were learning at that time are the three forms of kryptonite for our attention, which are stress, threat, and negative mood. And for most of us, this is part of, for all of us, it's part of being human. For most of us, it's like the annoyances that we have to encounter in our lives and the challenges we encounter. But for some professions, it is the exact defining circumstances where they have to do their best work. So I'm talking about first responders, emergency services people, uh, medical and nursing personnel, and then military service members. So they don't have a choice and we all lean on them to be able to do their job. So now if they, like all of us human beings, are going to suffer in terms of their attention and we need them to perform well, how are we going to do that? There has to be some way we might be able to help them train their own mind, especially through these high demand circumstances, to keep their attention steady and maybe even increase their capacity to do their job well. And then, of course, my interest after finding we, we did have a solution and we could help them, I wanted to bring it to as many people as possible, which is what motivated me to write the book. So you mentioned threat and in the book, you go into detail in what, you know, why that is and, and what a threat actually is. However, that really, that resonated very strongly with me because I realized how many times I have created a story in my mind that I am now perceiving as a threat or something, but it's not actual reality based. Is that what you see with a lot of people? Yes. You know, that was the thing that was so interesting for, for, a military service member, when they feel that their lives are in danger and that there's a threat, I mean, it's it's a real threat, right? Same thing with a with a police officer or uh, any you know anybody that has to interface at that level of of uh, dealing with violence. For most of us, you know, it's not the case. And and if we think about what makes us feel threatened, it's things like stereotype threat, the expectation that you may be you know one way and you are going to satisfy that. Like for example girls aren't good at math or women can't be bosses or, you know, like, who are you to think you can step into this big thing and do it? Like all those kind of negative biases that we hold in our own minds can actually become threatening for us and preoccupying for us as we try to maneuver in the world. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, borrowing, 
everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. I want you to know that finding ways to be more efficient, cut costs, and get rid of errors and mistakes can completely transform your business, boost your performance at the same time. This is why you need NetSuite now. Now, through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash Monahan. netsuite.com slash Monahan. NetSuite.com slash Monahan. When I started podcasting, an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm selling my group coaching on the regular, and it is just so easy, all because I use Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soaps or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got fired. Launching my own business seemed so intimidating. I didn't know how to set up a website and I really didn't need to. Shopify does it all for you and they make it so easy. It was that breakthrough moment for me that I realized I can do this. I can go to work for myself. Thanks to Shopify. What I love about Shopify is you don't need to have all this technology information ready to, you don't need to know how to plan and run things. You just need to go to the platform, turn it on and know what you're selling. And Shopify is going to help you figure out the rest. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries, including your girl right here. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash monahan all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Monahan now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Monahan. No matter what stage you're at, they're going to make it easy. And the thing that we learned is that in the same way actual physical threat can take away our attentional resources, because it basically means a part of our mind is just dealing with the fact that we are under threat. Well, that happens when our own mind creates the threat as well. And it's very real. And so whatever we can do to dissolve the added stress that we put on our own 
in our own minds is really a good thing we should try to figure out how to do. And that doesn't mean we're ignoring reality. It just means that we're just not, we're going to be as self-supportive as possible and not make our attention even more disadvantaged because of the possibilities that we create, the doom scenarios we create. I'm definitely somebody who signs up for that program. I'm constantly, you know, creating these ridiculous moments. Now, some of the things that you have many tactics in in the book that lay out how to handle different situations. And just now two pop into my mind, the flashlight and where we're focusing the flashlight. Yeah, yeah. These are actually, so a lot of what I try to do in the book is kind of bring people into the lab and let them know, you know, what do we know about attention? Because usually when most of us hear that term, if you're not if you're not a brain scientist that happens to study this uh, for a living, you think the word attention means focus, right? Mm-hmm. And but it actually, it, in terms of the brain science of attention, it's a lot more than that. So I wanted to kind of break down all the different aspects of attention, and then I got into and get, I'd love to talk to you about it. How do we train these systems every day on our own, like a mental workout, mental push up you know, for, the, for our minds to again deal with these kryptonite conditions? of stress, threat, and poor mood. So the flashlight, as you were just describing, is a way of thinking about attention that's very much like focus. So if you're in a darkened path, or even in Miami, you know, power goes out, we got to get to from one room to another, we get that flashlight out, and we're, we're, we're pointing to wherever we need to go, that really helps us. Wherever it is that the flashlight is pointing, we get clear, crisp information from that part of space. Everything else is less available to us, right? It's just literally blanked out. Well, attention is like a flashlight. Wherever we direct it, we get clear, crisp information. And wherever it is not, we are really not getting a lot of info from that. So think about that, how that translates into our moment-to-moment experience. Even going back to the example I gave of reading a book to my my then-toddler, now he's in college, but, you know, not having your attention on the most precious people in your life that means you're not getting any information about what's going on with that. You're missing facial expressions. You're missing stories of you're missing their challenges or their joys. So it goes really fast from the basic brain science to like the meaning of our lives. And I think that's very, very powerful. The most important thing to remember about the flashlight is that we can direct it willfully, just like an actual flashlight. We can point it to what we want to point it to. We can point it not only to the external environment, but to the internal environment, to our own thoughts, feelings, memories, and, and actually, that is how, um, in many ways, memory works, is that we're directing that internal flashlight to a particular episode in our life, for example. And then it kind of comes to mind because we did that. And everything else is sort of quieted down uh, when we do so. So part of it, uh, the, uh, the kind of adventure of training the mind is let's get a handle on our own flashlight. Where the heck is it? And let's practice having control over it and knowing when it gets yanked away unintentionally. Well, Amishi, my flashlight gets yanked away all of the time. (laughs) And for someone like me that truly, I mean, 9 million ideas are always popping up in my mind. I just always wondered, now I know it's the bad boss, right? And I need to retrain the boss to be a good boss, which we have the potential to do with the steps that you walk us through. However, I just thought, I, you know, I'm a creative person or I'm a type A personality and I just have lots of ideas. I wasn't aware that I really can focus the flashlight and I need to start practicing focusing the flashlight. How do you get people started when they're like me and they feel that there's their, their attention is being taken all over? Well, the first thing is your brain isn't broken. There's nothing wrong with your brain. And in many ways, as you said, you are a creative person, you're a generative person. 
And this capacity for our mind to pump out thoughts is, is our intrinsic brain capacity. It's what minds do. And, you know, if you remember back to the book, I, I start out with sort of a startling statistic, which is the number 50%. And what is 50%? It's the amount of time that we know from study after study that our attention is not in the task at hand. So where our attention is and where we want it to be are often mismatched. So we want to be focusing on, you know, the words that you're hearing from me, but, you know, something else pops up in your own mind or in your environment that pulls you away. Very, very normal. And that's, by the way, the job of the flashlight. If you go back to that darkened path example I was giving you, we're walking down a darkened path or even in your own house and like you hear something rustle behind you. The first thing you're going to do is move that flashlight to figure out where the sound came from. So the flashlight both can be directed, but it can also be pulled. And the kind of content that pulls the flashlight is novelty, again, fear, personally relevant. You might call the category sex, drugs, and rock and roll enticing stuff that you want to kind of, these are all things that will pull us. And if you can imagine, well, you know this, that is exactly what our social media feeds and our technology are luring us with constantly. That's just from the external environment. And then we've got all the stuff in the internal environment that pulls us away as well. So it's a real challenge. But yes, we can train ourselves to do this. And the first thing I'd say, you've already started because you already acknowledge that, yeah, I have a mind that does all these things. And you acknowledge, you know, sort of the first step is to actually realize that this is all happening and unfolding moment to moment. It's not happening in some other dimension. It's happening right now in my life, moment to moment. So if I'm going to address this, I have to do it in that way. I have to actually take it seriously in the same way. If you want to build your upper body strength, you'd you know, you'd work out if you want to have stronger legs or you want to have better physical health, you go to like you do soul cycle. <laughs> um, but we have to think of our minds the same way. And the trick has been, or I wouldn't say the trick, the challenge has been from a brain science perspective, we didn't know what to offer people. We did not know what is a full attentional workout for the mind that people can do every day in the privacy of their own homes, doesn't take any special equipment that could be beneficial. And that's what actually my own journey, as well as my lab's journey, landed on something kind of unusual, which was mindfulness meditation. And that's what we've been offering military service people and uh, first responders and busy corporate leaders and business leaders, uh, medical professionals. And we could definitely talk about what that is and, and how to implement it. Yes, absolutely. But I want everyone listening right now to do not get turned off by this idea of mindfulness and meditation because immediate that's my visceral reaction when I hear that oh I'm not good at that and I love that you weren't good at it either and that you found a breakthrough so Misha I'd love it if you'd share that a little bit I would say not only was it not about being good at it it was that I just had like it was it was like almost offensive to me the term it's like I'm a serious scientist like I don't want to deal with what is to me the term meditation and I mean I'm just completely acknowledging my own biases it was like talking, you know, as a brain scientist, I'm saying in particular, talking, somebody talking to me about meditation as a neuroscientist was like going to an astrophysicist conference and talking about astrology. You know, it was just like, what are you doing? And again, as an Indian woman, you know, people that are just listening can't tell, but as an Indian woman, this is part of my cultural sort of background and baggage. And I was like, not for me. It was great for my parents. Great for the, great that the culture accepts this, but I'm a serious scientist and we don't do that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of, I had to overcome in terms of my own skepticism. The issue about not being good at it, I just want to disabuse everybody that's listening. There is no being good at it. Remember what I just said, 50% of the time our mind wanders. If you try to sit down and practice mindfulness meditation and your mind wanders, that's a good thing that you noticed it. 
And the win is noticing how often it wanders. And the key is to bring it back after it does. That's the actual push-up part. The mind will wander on its own. And every time you know it's not where it's supposed to be and you guide it back, it's a win. That makes me feel a lot of comfort because as you mentioned, many of us have minds that wander off. And when I have tried to practice mindfulness, for me, I just used the Headspace app because it was someone guiding me and talking me through how to do it. You know, and I would keep noticing, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm off track here. I need to come back, but I like that idea of giving grace. That okay, I've noticed it, and that is, this is the work that I'm putting in. And by the way, that's the only thing we can do. If this is the tendency of mind to wander away, we were built to have distractible brains. It was an evolutionary success to have distractibility. And if you think about that, well, that's kind of weird. Why would you want to build a brain that was distractible? Imagine what would happen if we never allowed anything to penetrate our minds when we were focused. You know, you're sitting there, at least our ancestors at a watering hole, getting their hydration. They don't notice the rustling around them. Boom, they're dead. (laughs) Right? So having a mind that wanders around, that is always kind of surveying, that's scanning the environment, external and internal, this is a wonderful thing that the mind does. So to not feel annoyed or irritated by that. It's the nature of the mind. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, how do we actually befriend our mind knowing that it has these tendencies, right? And this, and I really do often think of myself sort of like the way I might even treat my children. Like if you have your children, child on a particular task, and when they were younger, it's like, you know, I want you to organize the spoons, you know, in the dishwasher or whatever, put the dishes away, organize whatever the task is. And then they get sidetracked. What do you do? Usually, if it's at least the first offense, you might say, come on, come back over here. Go back to doing this. It's like you notice they're not on the task at hand and you gently bring them over to guide them, especially when they're very little and you know that their attention isn't going to be that great. So why don't we do that with ourselves? When we get off track, why do we have to scream at ourselves? Why do we have to get angry of our mind just doing what they do? It's wasting time. It's wasting cognitive energy. And we're not getting back on track. We're spending our time now yelling at ourselves for the thing we didn't do. So the, the practice of mindfulness in many ways is about focusing and practicing the focusing. The second important piece is noticing that the mind has wandered away and then in a gentle yet self-supportive way, redirecting the flashlight back to the task at hand. And if you can cut the time between when you notice you're off task and you get yourself back, again, you're befriending yourself more and more. You're being more self-supportive. That's what you're trying to do. Well, just so everyone listening knows, because I I know mindfulness and meditation can sound overwhelming, but you're only talking about 12 minutes a day, which is very attainable. And that was another very important thing to me. I mean, I deal with a lot of all these groups that we described. um, They're all time pressured. We're all time pressured. Time is our most precious and least available resource. So that what I was on a hunt for in the lab was let's test out Let's give people different prescriptions of, of how much time we spend doing this. And then let's see what works. And that means you might under, you know, might undershoot. So we give them too little and it doesn't work. And we found sort of the sweet spot that we repeatedly found was beneficial, which was 12 minutes a day. And what do you do for these 12 minutes a day? It's a very simple, this three-step process where you find a target object and a very handy one. And that's, by the way, the only reason we really offer it is the breath. Is this, not, this is not about manipulating the breath or changing the breath. It's just, it's here with us always there. You don't have to have any special, um, you know, secret thing that you, you know, equipment to do it. Focus on the breath as it's naturally occurring. That's the, that's where the flashlight's supposed to be pointed. Notice when your mind has wandered away, redirect the flashlight back. Repeat. 
that's the push-up. And then we do that for 12 minutes a day. And then there's other practices where we can grow on, grow upon that. Seems to very, really help not only in improving our ability to pay attention, reduce mind wandering, and also help our stress levels and our um, negative mood. When starting out a new business, it's a complete pain to get through the LLC part. Taylor Brands makes it 90% easier. It's easy and affordable to get your LLC with Taylor Brands. Taylor Brands offers all the legal requirements for LLCs, such as registered agent, annual compliance, EIN, operating agreement, business license and permits, and much more. Taylor Brands walks you through each step of building a successful business and has everything you need all in one place. Bookkeeping, invoicing, business licenses and permits, business documents, bank accounts, and so much more. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans using this link, taylorbrands.com slash confidence. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash confidence. So get started today with Taylor Brands. CBDistillery.com is giving you an exclusive offer and it's huge right now. You can get up to 30% off everything. If you've struggled with sleep, stress, or pain after physical activity, cbdistillery.com has a targeted plant-powered solution just for you. I love hearing how many of you have seen improvement in your daily life, thanks to CBD. So if better sleep, more calm, and relief from discomfort after physical activity sounds good to you, you should explore CBD. Don't miss this massive sale and get up to 30% off your order Visit cbdistillery.com and enter VIP. That's cbdistillery.com and enter VIP at cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was the most impressive thing to me was the data that you shared. There were three different charts. One was showing if you didn't do any type of work around your awareness, your focus, your mindfulness. Then one was you were working with people and they were in high stress situations and they did not decline. And then you had another group where you worked with them and they entered high stress situations and they were still getting better. What was the big difference there? Yeah. You know, it was the amount of time that they spent. It's just like any kind of exercise. The more you do, the more you benefit for some people. So that was that's an important pattern that you just described. So just to unpack that a bit, when we look at high stress groups, and by the way, any of us over a high stress interval, whether it's preparing for a big launch, whether it's preparing for a court case, if you're a lawyer or, you know, hurricane season for firefighters, doesn't matter. Students over the academic semester, If it's a high demand interval that lasts four to eight weeks, your attention will get worse over time. Like just to know that. What does that mean? That by the end of that interval, not only is your attention worse, but now you got to probably perform. Student takes final exams. You know, if you're athlete, you got to play, you got to deal with playing season. If you're a soldier, you're going to be deployed. That's very problematic. When you need your attention most, it's the least available. And part of the reason it keeps declining is because those kryptonite things I talked about of stress, threat, and poor mood. So our main question was, 
okay, if we do nothing, we know what the consequences are. Attention's going to tank. What if we give people these practices, even if they're under a high stress period? And yeah, if they do 12 minutes a day for about four weeks as the on-ramp and continuing beyond that, if they choose to, they stay steady. They don't decline. And for those individuals that did even more than the 12 minutes, the more they did, the more they benefited. And some benefited to actually improving from where they started. That was very exciting to us because it meant that you know, fit people can get even more fit through exercise. We know that, but that's true for the mind as well. And that is illustrated through the story of, and I don't remember the man's name, but the man that you helped who was thinking about killing himself when he got out of the military and then started doing down a different path, started doing this work, got divorced, got remarried, had a child, completely changed his life and then had a heart attack. And he credits this work to what actually saved him. Absolutely. It's kind of tremendous to see the kind of beneficial effects it can have in our lives. It's unbelievable and life-changing work that you're doing. So help me to understand this. For my whole entire life, I had been told and believed full-heartedly that focus on positive things, tell yourself a positive story, get back to positivity. That is your answer and you're in control of that. However, in the book, you show that that actually is not the case or, or it can, you can employ that tactic, but that is not proven to work. So yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important wake up call. And let me just say, this is really regarding what happens under high demand intervals, you know, like the ones that I was describing. And frankly, the pandemic is a high demand interval. There's a lot on us. There's a lot of uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. You know, these are the sort of the defining features of, of what uh, demand and stress mean. So under those circumstances, I was just saying a moment ago that what we know is that attentional resources decline. They get less and less available. What do we need in order to actually reframe a situation as positive? Well, the first thing we need is our attention. Our attention helps build that internal mental model. Bringing the good to mind is an active energy demanding mental process. It does. If it was there already, we wouldn't need to bring it to mind. Right. So remember, I just said we take that flashlight, we direct it internally. We have to call up all those memories. Uh, we have to call up the kind of positive self-talk. And it takes a lot of cognitive resources to do that. So what we found is when we compared head to head mindfulness to a positivity training program in high stress groups, the positivity was actually better than nothing at all. And I think it's because it was sort of like draining out this fuel that we need, which is our attention. And so if you're going to use this approach, you know, positive self-talk, positive visioning, just be aware of where your kind of set point is right now. Do you have the resources to do it? And we know quite well, if it feels too painful, you know, and a lot of the soldiers would say this to us, you know, I just lost a buddy or he lost his leg. I don't, I can't see the silver lining here. Mm -hmm. I can't. And I'd say, right. And the right approach may not be to try to see the silver lining. Why is that the only go-to? How about accept and allow, feel that pain? You know, the next moment might change, but really let yourself be where you are. Give your permission, yourself permission to do that. That actually frees up more resources to be able to then do the next thing that we need to do. There was one part of the book. I actually took a screenshot of it because I loved it so much. It, it made me feel comfort and it was really in the routines that you're suggesting for people. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you live with ease. Very, very important. And by the way, that's not the same as a, as a positive self-talk. That is a wish we put in the world for ourselves and other people. And holding that in our hearts, and that's a formal practice that I give over this four-week suite of practices in the book, 
very powerful practice. We call it, you know, formally it's called the loving, a loving kindness practice. We call it a connection practice because essentially it allows us to connect back with what we hold most dear for ourselves, right? We want that for ourselves. In fact, we kind of organize our whole lives. So we experience those things. Somehow we forget when we're running around or, you know, have too many demands, the emails are piling up, the, the, the traffic is terrible. You know, all these daily annoyances we have, we forget what we truly want for ourselves is good health, physical and mental ease, and a warm, loving, uh, self-nurturing kind of stance toward our life. So just reminding ourselves of that can really change the micro decisions that we make to honor, honor that. And I'm glad that you found comfort in it. I do too. And oftentimes, you know, I'll do practices like the mindfulness one we described, but I'll mix it up with having loving kindness. In fact, oftentimes uh, I will do, you know, 12 minutes of the mindfulness and then 12 minutes of the loving kindness the next day, just to kind of even it out. So I think both are very, very important and beneficial. And I love that you bring up the element of being connected because so many of us are isolated. So many of us are now working from home. So many of us aren't feeling that connection. But one of the epiphany moments for me was in the book when you talk about the most loving thing we can do for someone is being present, being aware. That's the real connection. But so often when we're not being mindful, we're actually not present in that moment and what we're robbing from ourselves and from the people we love in our lives. Exactly. I mean, I always say like kindness and connection begin by paying attention. That's the very first step. That's what most of our precious inner circle, that's what they crave. That's what we crave. You know, I matter to you. I'm going to take the time that my flashlight is going to be directed toward you. You know, that's, that's the thing that makes us feel seen and heard. Uh, and that gives meaning to our lives. So oftentimes we want to do that, but we almost don't know how. And I think what I'm trying to do, what I'm definitely trying to do in the book is give people that tool back so they can find that flashlight and direct it wherever they want, knowing that how valuable it truly is. It can be shocking what any of us can be missing. And again, not because we're not there, but because we're not fully aware and fully present. That's right. Yeah. We can even learn about things about ourselves we never knew. You know, like it took my teeth going numb for me to say, oh, maybe I'm a little stressed. You know, it seems like, how could you miss it? But we do. We miss it. We go, go, go. And we don't take the time to pay attention to our bodies or our psychological health. And I think that. I think what you do in the kind of offerings you give through this podcast as well, I mean, you're reminding people, pay attention to this stuff. It really matters. You know, what you say to yourself matters. Your own inner chatter really matters. And what I'm saying is a compliment to that, which is, and here's how you can have better control over where your mind goes. You know, and I think the, that they both sort of go hand in hand. Well, I can tell you this after reading your book, I am committed to doing the 12 minutes a day and am praying for that kind of transformation that you share in the book <laughs> on so many occasions. Amishi, where can everyone find the book? Where can everyone find you? The book is called Peak Mind. It's out October 19th. So get it at any of your favorite retailers. And if they want to learn more about me, just remember my first name, Amishi, A-M-I-S-H-I. Uh, dot com. That's my website. Well, I so appreciate the work you're doing. Your book is amazing. I highly recommend everyone pick up a copy and implement this 12 minute process for a better, more present life. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. Until next week, keep creating your confidence.
this journey with me. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast that I am so excited about, Negotiate Your Best Life, hosted by Rebecca Zung, a part of the Yap Media Network. As a globally renowned narcissist negotiation expert and an attorney recognized by U.S. News as a best lawyer in America, Rebecca shares her invaluable insights and strategies for navigating life's toughest negotiations. By drawing from her own experiences and the wisdom of her high-profile guests, such as Bob Proctor, Mark Victor Hansen, John Gordon, and Rebecca delivers empowering advice that will inspire you to reclaim control of your life. Negotiate Your Best Life is all about how to negotiate your way to greatness. She provides practical guidance on how to break free from toxic relationships, stand up against injustice, and transform chaos into freedom, possibility, and purpose. Many times, the first negotiation you do is with your own in the morning. In the morning is when you wake up, and that's when Negotiate Your Best Life is time for you. It's about to find your way to greatness, conquering obstacles, and creating the life you truly deserve. Get ready to slay thrive and unlock your full potential don't believe me i'm gonna go ahead and share some of the reviews that are out there so you can hear and you can believe too You have helped me so much these last few weeks. I was with a narcissist for two years. She drove me to the point I wanted to take my own life. Listening to you has made a massive difference, and now I know what I'm with. Thank you, Rebecca. Now, the recovery. Thank you for gifting the knowledge to believe in myself again. You have unknowingly helped me legally represent myself through criminal, federal, and civil court proceedings with a narcissist. There would be so many people around the world that you're helping without even knowing like me. You saved my life. Emma, 35 years old, Australia. If you are ready to stand up against injustice and transform the chaos in your life into freedom, possibility, and purpose, then check out Negotiate Your Best Life now. Subscribe to Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.